You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Stone Panda is distributing the Quasar Rat. A new strain of Mirai is out. Bitcoin prices are up and so is the incidence of malicious cryptocurrency apps in Google Play. The U.S. charges WikiLeaks' Julian Assange with 17 new counts under the Espionage Act. U.K. political parties are said to have poor security. Huawei's on a charm offensive. Russia points with sad alarm to NATO cyber deterrence policy. And bogus law firm emails prove effective fishbait. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, May 24, 2019. There was more news late this week on APT10, also known as Stone Panda, and Silo found the group to be unusually active in April. The samples the company inspected came from the Philippines, which is in keeping with the APT's long-standing interest in Southeast Asia. APT10 was distributing a version of the Quasar Remote Access Trojan modified to incorporate the ShareSploit password stealer. The recent campaign also made use of the PlugX machine scouting tool. Trend Micro has discovered a new variant of Mirai, backdoor.linux.mirai.vwipt, circulating in the wild. The IoT botnet's new variant repurposes 13 exploits involving everything from remote code execution to authentication bypass. The assemblage seems opportunistic, but it's no less risky for all that. Trend Micro's advice is both familiar and sound. Patch and update vulnerable systems. There's a rise in malicious crypto apps, wallets, and other items cropping up in Google Play. ESET notices that this increase is significantly correlated with Bitcoin price spikes, so criminals continue to do what they always do, follow the money. The U.S. yesterday charged WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange with Espionage Act violations related to activities in 2009 and 2010. The indictment supersedes the one filed last month. Mr. Assange is currently serving a 50-week sentence in a British prison. Both the U.S. and Sweden are seeking his extradition. The latest charges arouse concerns about press freedom in Wired, for example, But the Justice Department counters that what WikiLeaks was up to had nothing to do with journalism. For what it's worth, Amnesty International has said that it does not regard Mr. Assange as a prisoner of conscience. The case will be interesting on many levels, but of course Mr. Assange will need to be extradited 
before any precedent-setting proceedings can begin. His tenure in Her Majesty's Prison Belmarsh won't be up until late this coming summer, and there's considerable sentiment in Parliament for sending him back to face justice in Sweden. Each of the U.S. charges under the Espionage Act carries a possible sentence of 10 years. If he were convicted on all the charges listed in the superseding indictment, and if they were imposed consecutively, he would face a sentence of 175 years. We heard about Security Scorecard's study of political parties' cybersecurity earlier this week. Another study is out, and this one focused on the United Kingdom. A study from security firm Redsift finds all 22 major British political parties have deplorable cybersecurity. The Liberal Democrats, Labour, the Scottish National Party, the Socialist, and the Animal Welfare Party have all at least implemented DMARC, which puts them ahead of the Tories, UKIP, and Brexiteers. But on the whole, it's not a pretty sight. Under increasing pressure as the U.S. blacklist extends its reach to international customers, Huawei takes its charm counteroffensive to Vice. Vice did a nice job with the underattended press junket, polite but palpably skeptical. The presentation is interesting if only because it illustrates the ways in which China continues to fumble with information operations. Imagine the slicker packaging a Russian operation would have wrapped around the messaging, and you'll see the contrast. China has done much better with more traditional service tradecraft, like funding think tanks and sending students to universities in target countries, although the gaffe has been blown on most of those approaches as well. But here again we see the paradox of information operations. Both China and the U.S. excel at selling things to mass markets, but they have trouble selling narratives more complicated and insinuating than the parable of the ring around the collar. China's marketing successes, you may object, are based on the fact that they sell affordable but reasonably reliable commodities, and that's true. But again, contrast Russia, whose only successful foray into consumer markets has been the Kalishnikov battle rifle. They don't make noodles or soft drinks for export, but Moscow can get people to lap up the bogus news stories. Speaking of Russian narratives, Moscow has taken note of NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg's London remarks, pointing out with somber alarm in Sputnik to the Secretary General's obvious point that a response to a cyber attack need not itself be just another cyber counterattack. Anyone who's paid attention to NATO strategic thinking for the past seven decades isn't surprised by the Secretary General's remarks. Most retaliation, even proportionate retaliation, isn't retaliation in kind. There's no law of armed conflict that says you have to respond to an attack by an armored division with a counterattack by your own armored division. But Sputnik manages to insinuate that NATO would be inclined to shoot down an airliner or even use a small nuclear weapon in response to a fishing incident. The use of language in the Sputnik article is worth remarking. The publications allude to the incident, as they put it, in which two former Russian nationals, the Skripals, were poisoned in the UK. Britain says the GRU did it, but Sputnik points out that Russia has refuted such accusations. Refuted isn't synonymous with denied, which of course is what Moscow actually did. And finally, emails that appear to carry threats of litigation are proving effective fishbait, Krebs on Security reports. A phishing template that misrepresents its emails as coming from a law firm is being sold in dark web markets. You can pick your firm from among Pullman & Associates, Weissman & Associates, Steinberg & Associates, Schwartz & Associates, or Quartermain & Associates. 
The text of the email template warns the recipient that they are being charged by the city and that if they don't reply in seven days, we will be forced to step forward with this action. The usage is predictably wayward. No law firm is likely to use the salutation, Hi, for example. But it might be scary enough to spook the unwary and the naive to click. So just say, I write back at you, and delete the message unclicked. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute and also my co-host on the Hacking Humans podcast. Joe, it's great to have you back. It's good to be back, Dave. Uh, We are going to cover a recent posting from the Google Security blog. This Mm -hmm. is uh, new research, how effective is basic account hygiene at preventing hijacking? Right. This is right up our alley, the kind of thing we would talk about over on Hacking Humans. It's one of my favorite things to talk about, too. There's a lot of interesting data in this report. There is, and it's uh, very Take concise us it. report mm-hmm. as well. So it's a it's a quick read and it's and it's very good. But they talk about different kinds of of protective processes you can do for multi-factor authentication and for secondary uh, knowledge-based challenges. Okay. And they talk about six specifics here. One is an on-device prompt. Right. This is where you uh, you have a phone and it says, "Did you just log into your Google account?" And you say, "Yes, it was me." No, it wasn't. Right. Okay. Another one is an SMS code. Text right. message. A text message code. Yep. yep. Uh, a security key, like a YubiKey or the the Google Titan. Right. Using a secondary email address and a phone number. Yeah. That's another one, like having having access to a phone number. And finally, the last sign-in location, knowing your last the location of your last sign-in. Oh, okay. Yep, yep. Uh, what's remarkable is that all of these, with the exception of your secondary email address, are 100% effective in this study of stopping automated attacks. But what I also think is interesting is that SMS codes, which which I frequently describe as the least secure 
form of two-factor authentication because it can be socially engineered, right? You can mm-hmm. be talked into giving up the code, and it can also be hacked by somebody cloning your, uh, your SIM card. Right. That will stop 100% of the automated attacks as well. Right. So okay. a bot is running through these username and password pairs. It sees, enter the code we just sent you by the SMS. It is just going to skip to the next, you know, stop the attack and go on to the next one in the list. Yeah. It's not going to make an effort because that actually requires some human effort to get in there. Right. It is 96% effective in bulk phishing attacks, right? Hmm. So 96% of the time, it stops a bulk phishing attack. But a targeted attack where somebody is trying to actively work with you, it still has a remarkably high success rate of 76% of the time it prevents you from having your account taken over. So how do these numbers compare to the percentages if someone doesn't have these sorts of things enabled? Right. So if, if you don't have like a, uh, a phone configured yeah. with either the on-device prompt or an SMS code or a security key, then they fall back to other knowledge-based systems. Mm-hmm. And we've already talked about how the secondary email addresses is the, one, the only one that falls victim to the automated attacks. Right. But a, just a simple phone number can be as as effective as uh, 25%, right? So 25% of the time, you're protected by it. So 75% of the time, somebody gets in. And with your last sign-in location, that knowledge base falls down to a 10% protection level. Hmm. So 90% of the time, the attackers are successful. Yeah. Probably because they know where you signed in last from just by guessing, by knowing where you're located. So there really is. A, I'm, I'm surprised at the, the gap here that... Right. Uh, maybe I shouldn't be, but the gap here that if you... If you have these things enabled, it's a big difference between having them and not, right? according to what Google's tracked here. Now, what about having a physical security key? Now, that that stops 100% of all these attacks. In their hmm. study, nobody with a physical security key lost control of their account. Not even people targeted with, like, spear phishing. Right. But I, I guess the point here is that uh, if you're someone who feels as though you could be targeted mm-hmm. or uh, for the things that you care most about right. your financial things, you know, stuff like that. Yep. Uh, boy, a security key is the way to go. A security key is the way to go. I use one. It's called a YubiKey and mm-hmm. Google supports it. So I have it as the sign in on my accounts and it will ask me for the key and I have to have the physical key. You know, that's a, a minor inconvenience, but it keeps my account secure. Yeah. All right. Well, it's an interesting report. Uh, highly recommended. Again, it's called How Effective is Basic Account Hygiene at Preventing Hijacking? And that's over on the Google Security Blog. Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dave. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Nate Lesser. He's CEO at Cypient Black, a company that's looking to improve the protection of high-value targets, their families, and their personal digital lives. The challenge begins, according to Nate Lesser, with the fact that convenience often trumps security when it comes to segregating our personal and professional digital ecosystems. 
something he refers to as entangled enterprise risk. We think of entanglement as this notion that comes really from the concept of quantum entanglement, this idea of spooky action at a distance. The idea that an attacker's action in one domain in one place can have an impact somewhere else, in some cases even without the direct technical connection between those two spaces. So the example that, that we focus on is an attacker's compromise of the digital personal life of a high-value target can have an impact on the company that target works for, whether or not that attack then pivots to try and technically compromise the company, or even just through the notion of, we think of entanglement, as the idea that the compromise of that individual might affect the risk posture or the business operations of a company because of a reputational risk or the loss of sales or impact to other employees. So what are some of the specific risks here in in terms of uh, having separate parts of your business life entangled this way? I think it's important to recognize that this entanglement exists whether or not we kind of recognize it. And it, mm. and it's often not a technical entanglement. So as I mentioned before, we think of this risk and we kind of classify the entanglement risk in two ways. Um, we refer to them as pivot attacks, which is what you would naturally expect, right? Somebody compromises my personal cell phone. Uh, perhaps I also do It's owned by me and managed by me, but maybe I also have my work email on it, and that's not well segregated, so they're able to compromise something about my my professional environment. And we think of that as a pivot attack. Or maybe Mm. they compromise my Apple Watch or or my, my, you know, any kind of smartwatch. And Mm. when I go into the office, I've hooked that smartwatch up to our corporate Wi-Fi, which maybe my company allows. And then they can use it to pivot as a, you know, an IoT device that's now on the corporate network. They could use that device to try and pivot into the enterprise network. So we think of that in type of entanglement as pivot attacks. And and when we refer to that, we're often thinking of things that enterprise security team has some awareness of or the ability to understand and know, the ability to enumerate those uh, attack vectors and points of, of ingress Um, and really the ability to do something about. The other type of entanglement, which we talk talk about as endgame attacks, when when an attacker exploits the second type of entanglement, it's usually the compromise of the personal digital life of the executive or high-value target or even just an employee at a company is the endgame in and of itself. And there is no pivot into the enterprise. And when we think of those types of attacks, Unfortunately, the thing that characterizes them the most is that the enterprise security team has no awareness, no purview, no mandate to do anything about those types of attacks. And that's where we've really left our executives, high-value targets, and all of our employees out in the cold. Can you walk me through a specific uh, example of uh, that second possibility? Sure. Um, so an endgame attack might look like, and this is a this is a real world example from a forensic investigation. A CEO of a major auto manufacturer was in the midst of a, a really uh, a, a nasty labor dispute, and in the midst of sensitive negotiations to resolve that labor dispute, when his daughter went out on a lunch date, and protesters showed up 
at that lunch date, somebody decided to check her phone for malicious tracking software and discovered some. So this is now, and unsurprisingly, because the protesters were protesting her activity at this lunch was really about the labor dispute. Unsurprisingly, the CEO of this company was dismayed and it derailed their negotiations, costing the company quite a lot of money. So we're now looking at, from a technical perspective, three steps removed. It wasn't the company that was compromised. It wasn't the CEO. It was his daughter's phone. And yet it cost the company, I think the number was millions of dollars. Hmm. Well, how do you come at that? When you have something that far removed, uh, and I I think it's reasonable to expect people would be sharing things like home Wi-Fis and and so forth, uh, where do you begin? Well, I think that's exactly the right question. And and I, I like that you caveated it in that way, right? So when we think about it, you already started to put in place the notion that it's not like we can just take the set of security capabilities we have in the enterprise and apply them to our personal lives. They would break everything. So how do we start to put in place security protections that really provide holistic coverage for individuals' digital personal life while simultaneously allowing our, we think of them as our protectees, the the constituents that we're trying to serve Hmm. uh, to interact with their digital lives in the ways that they they want to. We have some answers to that question, but I don't think we have the only answers. Um, But we do think it begins with enterprises recognizing this risk and then being willing to pay for protection for their, at least their executives and other high value targets. So for big companies, those that are spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year on their cybersecurity team, they've got all the expertise and all the capability in place that you could possibly want and imagine. And yet, they're not providing these kind of protections to their C-suite, to their board of directors. And usually it's because their chief counsel will tell you, I don't want someone's home network logs to be inside the enterprise and be discoverable. And we can't possibly have those show up in some SEC filing because we accidentally or intentionally released them because we had to. We need we need to have a bright line between people's personal lives and the, the company. And so hmm. um, we believe that the, the answer to this, the long-term answer, the real solution is to have companies provide cybersecurity for their executives and other high-value targets as a benefit and to pay for it, but to have it provided just like your healthcare by a third party. And the same way your doctor doesn't call up the company to tell them you're sick, your cybersecurity provider for your personal life wouldn't have any technical connection back into the enterprise, would not provide logs or incident information back to the company, and Hmm. therefore preserve the privacy of the individuals that that company protects. When that bridge has to be crossed, if something happens in the executive's personal life, uh, you know, a family member clicks on something they shouldn't, what's the chain to alert the the business that we may have an issue here? Right. So it's a great question. I, you know, the, the answer and, and we've struggled with this quite a bit and I, and I wouldn't I, I don't think we have the only answer. Yeah. The answer we give is that it, th- there is no connection there. If the executive wants to report back to their company, that's that's their business. But the same way that your doctor is not going to call you, your CEO might have a terminal illness. Nobody's calling the company to tell them. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Again, to sort of uh, strain the metaphor, but I, I'm imagining, you know, the CEO um, at the end of the day, you know, walking into the boardroom and taking the Mona Lisa off the wall, putting in the front seat of his car, driving home, and then hanging it on the wall above his fireplace and doing that every single day, you know, back and mm-hmm. forth between right. home and the office, right? He's got this incredibly valuable thing, but uh, like you say, at the museum, it's properly protected, but at home, not necessarily so much. It, it, that's exactly right. And, and, and so let's talk about what that, going back to the notion of entanglement, what is the Mona Lisa? Well, it's not just a device that the enterprise has already locked down and protected. The enterprise is doing a pretty good job of that. It's the information in the CEO's head. It's the CEO's reputation itself. Hmm. It's the safety of your CEO's children. It's your CEO's travel patterns. Things that don't just exist with inside the confines of enterprise assets. That's Nate Lesser. He is CEO at Sipient Black. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Thank you.